Trajectory looks to the future and understands the past, but human arrogance is shown by the way in which we keep revising what happened in the past, but even more so by the way we fail to be able to ever predict the future. I mean, who would have planned 2020? Who thought that we would be doing what we are doing? I mean, it just is an extraordinary... There's some very funny uh, YouTubes out about people talking about the changes that have happened in their life this year and they never imagined would happen because, well, nobody planned for this other than God, of course. Humans are really good at failing to predict the future. Here are some of my favourite quotes. Lord Kelvin, who was a very keen Christian, who was a professor at uh, Glasgow University and who was the uh, scientist royal. He was, he was a great one, was Lord Kelvin. You know, he, uh, the Kelvin scale. Uh, he invented uh, the whole understanding of thermodynamics. I mean, Kelvin was a great one. He said, just uh, at the... He, was, he died in 1907, but he said, heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible. He said that about a year before the, the Wright brothers flew. He said, I have not the smallest molecule of faith in aerial navigation other than ballooning or the expectation of good results from any of the trials we hear. I wouldn't care to be a member of an aeronautical society. Simon Newcomb, he was the professor of maths at John Hopkins University, uh, died around the same time, 1909. He said, flight by machines heavier than air is unpractical and insignificant, if not utterly impossible. Uh, Napoleon, of Bonaparte fame, Napoleon, he said to an inventor, you're planning to make a ship that sails against the wind and tide by lighting a fire below decks. I don't have time to listen to that nonsense. And again, uh, Sir Harold Spencer Jones, who was a professor at Cambridge University and the Astronomer Royal, he said, space travel is bunk two weeks before the Russians put Sputnik up. He also said, I'm of the opinion that generations will pass before man ever lands on the moon, and that should he eventually succeed in doing so, there would be little hope of his succeeding in returning to Earth and telling us of his experience. Beyond the moon, he is never likely to go unless through an error in launching his space vehicle, missing its target and wandering off into space never to return. He said that in 1957, just 12 years before Apollo 11 landed on the moon and returned. The capacity for humans to fail in their predictions, it just goes on and on. Uh, read any economic predictions and you'll see the failure is just massive. We can't know what's going to happen in the future, though we keep making decisions on the basis of what we think will happen in the future or what we want to happen in the future. Now, I hope you had a great time with our little not trivial quiz. It's not trivial because it was uh, God working his purposes out in the history of the world and we do need to understand that history and at least know the, the, the steps that took place as well as understanding God's plans in the bit of history that we're looking at, particularly understanding his plans in this part of the history. So we look at the passages of scripture in this session Quite a few. We're going to work fairly hard in the next little while. 
this session uh, going to keep referring back to background history. You'll see that on the outlines before you, if you have the outlines. And we start off, though, by going back to Psalm 89, where we read of God and his word to David and his family. Remember these two things about God and his word. The God who made the promises is the sovereign ruler of the universe who's all-powerful to fulfil his promises, and secondly, that God, who made the promises, is loving and faithful and will not lie or change his mind. He's trustworthy and reliable. He's given his word. He'll keep his word. So now let's look at the history of the period. I'm going to do it by maps because I first studied geography and I love maps. So these are naughty maps because they don't have scales, north points and all kinds of things that you're supposed to have on a good map. Firstly, on the map of what the British call the Middle East because they're arrogant imperialists. In fact, it's, uh, it's Southwest Asia that we're talking. It's only Middle East if you live west of it. Ponder it for a while there. You know? It's not Middle East from here. It's far west from here. It's Southwest Asia. It's the place where three continents come together, Asia, Africa and Europe all come in this little bridge just here in this part. And uh, to help us get acquainted with it, we're, what we're talking about, here's the modern names for some of the nations in this area that you could uh, know. Oh, sorry, you'll see, by the way, you've got to remember the Arabian Desert, because that's always important to understand. Um, the green of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and the coastline, if they wanted to go across the Arabian Desert, without aeroplanes in the ancient world, you had to walk around it. So people from the east are actually the same as the people from the north because they walked from the east around and come to us from the north. A little bit of biblical confusion there that happens because we don't remember the Arabian desert. We of all people should remember deserts. But move to the modern map that you'll see and there's the kinds of countries we're talking about, Tur Turkey, Syria, Iraq, over there is, uh, is, if I can get to it, is uh, Lebanon, of course. Uh, Israel's down here. Egypt's here. Actually, Iran. The eye over there is Iran. That little eye right on the edge of the map is Iran. This is the part of the world that's still in the newspaper all the time, isn't it? Here is the world where controversy, fights, warfares are still happening thousands of years later because this is the coming together of these three continents. You rule this part of the world, you could rule the world, but no one seems to be able to. Now let's go back to David's day and just down to this southeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea and there is the, in the blue, the deep blue, I think it's blue isn't it, I'm a bit colour blind, um, is uh, the kingdom of David. Uh, Judah and Israel combined and around it all the little kingdoms, the, the little nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Arab and Philistia, Phoenicia, they're all, they're actually small nations in the time of David, as David's kingdom seemed to be small at that time too. Now the promise was to David and his sons, his family would be forever the dynasty of, of God's people. But at the time of his grandson, Rehoboam, it all went amok. Solomon had the same kingdom as David, but Solomon's son Rehoboam, David's grandson, the kingdom was split with Israel, the ten northern tribes, and Judah, the two southern tribes. They never really reunited, those two. The southern tribes, Judah, where Jerusalem was, 
That was Rehoboam. That was the royal family of David. The northern kingdom, that was in rebellion against David's family. Uh, that was Jeroboam. And they continued. But that's only the beginning of the trouble. History is not about dates. But just for your sake, and this is the easiest date you'll ever have to remember, David lived 1000 BC. You lived 2000 AD, he lived 1000 B. You've got to admit, that's easier than remembering 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. This is really a very easy date, 1000 David, right? And at the time of David, the world empires were weak. Assyria was weak. Egypt was weak, Rome hadn't come on the scenes yet, uh, Greece hadn't arrived, Alexander the Great, well, he, you know, he's got another 600 years, 700 years before he even born. So the kingdoms were, the big kingdoms were weak. But then after David and after Solomon, Assyria started to develop. Assyria's capital is Nineveh, and today it's called Mosul, just across the river, uh, I'm sorry that, it's, that the way the map has Assyria, you see uh, Nineveh's name is almost obscured there, but it's on the Tigris uh, River, not the Euphrates. The Tigris is the one to the east, Euphrates the one to the west. And from Nineveh, the kingdom spread, and it really did spread all the way down to Egypt, all into Turkey, and across to, the, uh, uh, across to Iran. It became the world empire of the time. So by 750, it had come down to Israel. In 722, it destroyed Israel, but not Judah. In 705, they came into Judah. They actually sieged, besieged the city of Jerusalem, and then at the last minute... Suddenly, inexplicably, it would seem, Sennacherib and they just went home, and Judah survived. Here was a great threat. This wasn't the threat of the kind of little local states. I mean, when I talk about Victoria and Queensland, love South Australia, love Queensland. Just thought I'd say that for the sake of the live stream people here. Uh, you heard he only came to Sydney because he couldn't get into Adelaide. Says it all, doesn't it? It's not like that. We're talking about China. We're talking about the United States of America. We're talking about Russia. We're talking about the world powers that we're dealing with when we talk about Assyria. But under King Hezekiah, one of David's grand, great, great grandsons, under King Hezekiah, Jerusalem and Judah was miraculously spared the Assyrian conquest. And so the promise to David looked secure. God had kept his word. David's son continued to reign on David's capital city, Jerusalem, with Solomon the temple right there. And then an astonishing thing happened in world events. Almost overnight, it would seem. It was like the fall of the wall of Berlin, which some of you are not old enough to remember. But suddenly, this, this empire that seemed to be impossible to defeat just collapsed overnight. And Nineveh was defeated and destroyed in 612 BC and its whole Assyrian Empire disappeared from the face of the earth. It was defeated by a combination of the Medes, who were to the east and north, and the Babylonians, who were to the south, centred on Babylon, on the river Euphrates. These changed the whole world landscape with the rise of what is called the Medo-Babylonian Empire, because the two worked together but not very harmoniously. 
And with the rise of the Babylonians came the downfall of Judah and Jerusalem. This time the sins of the people of Judah were not were just too much for God to bear. Their idolatry and syncretism, their mixing together of religions, was no longer tolerable to God. And their confidence for survival was absolutely idolatrous, really, because it, it existed in the temple. We've got the temple, we'll be safe. We've got the temple, we'll be safe. They didn't worship God. They didn't do what God wanted in the temple. But we have the temple. We have Jerusalem. We'll be safe. We have Jerusalem. We'll be safe. We've got the king. He's David's son. We'll be safe. We don't have to live in godliness because, well, we've got the temple. We've got the city. We've got the king. We, we'll be safe. But God, God wouldn't let the Assyrians conquer us. But God handed them over to the Babylonians. And under Nebuchadnezzar, Judah fell. The city was sacked. The temple was destroyed and the dynasty of David ruling in Jerusalem came to an end. And so we have Psalm 89. Turn back to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, it's a long psalm, isn't it? It started so wonderfully, didn't it? God is faithful in the heavens. God is loving. God has chosen David, made the promises to David. God is all powerful. He rules the world in every way. God is faithful. He won't lie to David. Now we're going to read what happens from verse 38 to the end of the chapter. And Monique's going to come and read this for us, isn't it? I'll just get out of the way, Monique, while you come and do the reading here. Verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. You're thankful for the last verse, otherwise you'd think he'd given up the faith, wouldn't you? God's faithfulness, well, where is it? See, here's the great crisis in the Old Testament. The crisis, not so much of slavery, dreadful as that was, but the crisis of trust. We trust God's word. We trust God's faithfulness. We trust God's love for us. 
We trust God's power to bring about his purposes. But where are we now? Where are you now, God? What's happening to your promises? What's happening to your faithfulness? How come we are now in slavery? How come the Davidic dynasty seems to have gone? It's reflected in the Psalm 137, which is another Babylonian psalm. Just flip back there for a moment. You might know it because it's sung, sometimes upbeat, which is impossible. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willow there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joys. Now, to these people under this captivity with this kind of emotional constraint that is upon them because of the sheer disappointment in God that they are feeling that we have Isaiah 40 that you read in the last session. Come with me to Isaiah 40. Come across there, Isaiah 40. What a wonderful opening. Comes to them, comfort, comfort my people. If ever a group of people needed those words, that is it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the, uh, for a new exodus. Out of slavery, God leading his people across the wilderness, across that great Arabian desert. And the great statement comes about God and his word in verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? Here's the great message. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. If you're a Bible marker, this is a, passage to, this is a passage to mark. If you're not a Bible marker, well, become one. And if it's somebody else's Bible you've got, don't mark it. Well, no, mark it. It'll help them. They should know it too. It's a really important little passage. We're going to come back to it in due time. See, God promised, and he keeps his word. And so his promises stand. The world changes. It's always changing, like the grass that flowers. Assyrians come, Babylonians come, Medes come, Persians come. The world's always changing. People are always changing, but God does not change. God's word will stand forever. So after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, an extraordinarily and totally unexpected thing happened. Babylon fell as quickly and as suddenly as Nineveh did. It was an astonishing thing to have happened, that it just disappeared overnight, it would seem. And so let's go back to the history for a moment. For within the Median Empire, a revolution took place. For there was a Persian element to the Median Empire, and the Persians got sick of the Medes ruling over them. And so one man in particular, Cyrus, rose up and 
with war after war destroyed the Median Empire. And so the Babylonian Empire fell as well. What had arrived were the Persians, and the Persians were greater still. No one would have guessed it. Who would have guessed? Who would have expected it? Not the slaves in Babylon. They, they weren't expecting it. They didn't know how anything could happen. That this man on far off Persia in Iran, out of the capital city of Susa, that he would rise up and start an empire that would not only cover the two rivers and reach down to Egypt, but would go off into Turkey, all the way across Turkey, and go into Greece, and so start approaching Europe. This was a big empire that was to take place. This was the greatest empire that had ever happened, but it arrived overnight. No one expected it. No one predicted it other than God. For who would have guessed, who would have expected that this would happen? But Cyrus wasn't particularly interested in Jerusalem and Judah. And so under Cyrus, the Jews were sent home from Babylon. They were the enemies of Babylon. Babylon were his enemies. Your enemies are my enemies. And so he packed them home to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their kingdom and to start all over again. Who would have guessed? And so we read in Isaiah 41, the invitation to judgment. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, and let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near to, together in, for judgment. See, all the nations, the little ones that we're talking about just around Judah, come together, the little ones gathered, come and let's have a talk about this, says the God of all the earth. All the nations living under threat of the Persia's king come together for a judgment time with the Lord. And God's argument runs in chapter 41 of Isaiah in three sections. We won't read every verse of the chapter, but we're going to be reading quite a bit of it here now. The first section is who raised up this conqueror, verses 2 to 7. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. Now, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbour and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and who smooths with a hammer him who strikes with the anvil, saying to the soldering, it's good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They think by their technology they're going to beat the king of Persia. They have no chance, none at all, because God has raised him. They're all terrified by him and they make themselves ready for war, but he has complete victory everywhere he goes because Yahweh he's the one who's raised him up I the Lord have conquered the world through him who has performed and done this he says you see who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning I Yahweh the first and with the last I am he 
God from the beginning was planning the Persian conquest of Babylon and God was now bringing this into effect because God is the one who's bringing the world to where he wants to take it. Secondly, verses 8 to 20, we read of the Lord who rescues Israel. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abram, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corner, saying, you are my servant, I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All the other nations are terrified, but God is saying to his nation, it's all right. Look, I'm looking after you. Israel was God's chosen people. He had chosen them as his servant. He had not cast them off. They thought he had when they lived in Babylon, but he hadn't. Even when they sinned, he had not cast them off. He was going to rescue them by the Persians. I mean, friends, it's like saying you're going to be rescued by Hitler. You know, don't worry about Stalin. He's going to rescue you. Hey, I know Pol Pot's killed a third of the population, but I've sent him to rescue you. It is as unlikely an idea that this Cyrus is going to be God's servant to rescue his people. But verses 21 to 29 raises the next question. Which God is God? Verse 21, set forth your case. Say, the Lord, bring your, sorry, set, for your, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, say, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good and do, or do harm, that we may dismayed and be terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as, a, as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he's right? There, there was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among the, these, there is no counsellor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. So here's the great difference between Yahweh and the other gods. Yahweh speaks beforehand and tells you, what is to come, tells you what he will do. He's about to tell you the future, not because he's a fortune teller, but because he's the one who creates the future. He raises up and he puts down. He sent the Assyrians to defeat Israel. He sent the Babylonians to defeat Judah. And he sent the Persians to defeat the Babylonians and to rescue and now the Persians, you see, are going to fulfil the promises to David that God has made. How different are the gods of the nations? 
They are but delusions, he says, empty noise like wind in a metal. They're not the God who speaks. They're not the God who rules. They're not the God whose word brings about the future. They're not the God who keeps these promises. They're about as reliable as Mr Trump predicting about COVID. They really don't know what's happening. They don't know what's going to happen. And they just keep making promises that don't come true. Whereas the God of the Bible, he keeps his word. But then he keeps his word like you would never expect. He doesn't do what you expect him to do. He does something quite different to your expectations in keeping his word. And so we come to chapter 42 and the astonishing servant of verses 1 to 9. Very important passages I'm reading to you here, my friends. Really important if you're ever going to understand the New Testament and the Gospel. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. Thus says the God who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth. And what comes from it, who gives breath to the people and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations to open the eyes of those that are blind, to bring, about the, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is God. He is in control of the future. For he brings it about. But he brings it about in extraordinary ways. Not by the conquering king ruling the universe through his military might or something. This is not the alpha male whom everybody looks to in his regal splendour and his, the head of his mighty army. Here is a servant, a nobody, somebody who nobody notices. You don't even remember how to describe him. And he will bring forth and establish what no king of the world has ever been able to, justice on the earth who will be a sure promise to his people and He'll be a light to the nations to open, verses 6 and 7, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from their dungeon. God is not sharing his glory with anyone. He alone declares what will happen. And then as a result, they happen. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before the spring forth, before they spring forth, I tell you about them. And just as there is an unexpected and unexplained servant, there's also an unwanted Messiah. 
for Cyrus is his Messiah, but Cyrus is a pagan. Skip across to chapter 45. Chapter 45. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. The word anointed means Christ. Thus says Yahweh to his Christ, Cyrus. <laughs> Extraordinary. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by, my na by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you don't even know me. I am Yahweh and there is no other beside me. There is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh and do all these things. There's only one God in all the world. There's only one who rules over all the world. I have not the slightest shadow of a doubt that coronavirus comes as a result of God's intention for humanity in the year 2020. For this is God. He creates light and he creates darkness. He makes well-being and he creates calamity. This is God, the one and only. Isaiah makes it explicit that God has raised up Cyrus, this Bonaparte, this Hitler, this Stalin, this Mao, this, this awful conqueror of the world. God has raised him up and anointed him as king in order to save his people. It demonstrates the sovereignty of God. For not only does he do it, but he tells you he's going to do it beforehand. That he's going to save his people through such an unexpected, unwanted Messiah as Cyrus. Israel's not pleased. They don't like, they don't understand the sovereignty of God that creates darkness as well as light. And, they, and, and so they want to water this down. We come to our last reading then, the last few verses, the last few bits of Isaiah 45, I want to draw your attention to verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labour? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come? Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Don't quarrel with God. Don't quarrel with your maker. Don't instruct him on in how to do his business. You remember Peter? 
Remember Peter, how Jesus, he finally identified who Jesus is. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, and I'm going to suffer and die and rise on the third day. And what does Peter say? Oh, no, no, this must not happen. If he is the Christ, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to run a kingdom. But no, we, in our arrogant foolishness, keep on trying to tell God what should or shouldn't happen or how he should do it or not do it. And it goes right back here, you see. God will save any way he wants to with a strange servant, unnamed person who seems to have no personal magnetism or strength of his own, but who's going to enlighten the world and bring justice to the earth and the nations. And a conquering king who seems to be the antithesis of God's king, and yet God is going to rescue his people through him. For God and his word are the all-powerful agents in this world. Never challenge God's sovereignty. His sovereignty to bring about anything he wants to in this world. He rules over all, in justice and in righteousness, because of his love and faithfulness. And he's bringing his purposes about. But he's doing it in his time and his way, not your time and your way, not our time and our way, not my time and my way. He's doing it his time, his way. But he has spoken, so we do know what he's doing. We're not, we're not left in the dark and in ignorance on this matter because he has spoken by his word. And his word will be kept because he is powerful enough to do as he says and because he's faithful enough to be trusted always to keep his word. So it is his word which is the word of the future. You want to know what's going to happen in your life? You know what's going to happen in this world? It is his word that tells you what is going to happen. It is his word that enables you to live through the plague and the pandemic and the disappointments and the frustrations and the changes of expectations. His word stands firm. And Israel was looked forward to a Messiah that was going to be different to their expectations. Well, if you think Cyrus was different to their expectations, Jesus was so different they crucified him. That's how much they wanted that one. Different to their expectations. And a servant who is different to everybody's expectations. Well, if we crucify him, that'll get rid of him. In fact, by crucifying him, they saved the world. It's all different to your expectations, but it's not different to God's word. God keeps his word, his way, his time. But not only would they be saved by this unexpected servant and by this unwanted Messiah, the whole world would be brought to enlightenment and justice and peace because God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And never will you see it more than that unwanted Messiah and that totally unexpected servant than the Lord Jesus Christ in his death at Calvary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all good things that you give to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that 
you told us of him beforehand in the historical circumstances of the kingdoms of Assyria and of Babylon, of the Medes and of the Persians, how you fulfilled your word to David. You kept your promises and you exercised your loving care of protection and salvation. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the one who is full of grace, full of truth. You are the one who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness to bring righteousness and justice to this world. And we thank you, Father, that you have done this for us in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, your Christ and your servant. And we thank and praise you for him, Father. And we pray that you would help us now to so understand the future that you have planned for your world and the future that you have planned for us, that we may live in this present time in the ways that will bring praise and glory to you in all things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.